Thank you for listening to another episode of More Than Isms Extra, hosted by Calvin Eaton, founding director of 540 West Main, Inc. 540 West Main is a nonprofit community organization located in the Susan B. Anthony neighborhood of Rochester, New York. Our mission is to curate and create online and community-based programming rooted in anti-racism and justice for all. You can learn more about our mission and our work by visiting our website, 540westmain.org. If you'd like to support our work further, you can also become a monthly sustaining member, which ensures that we continue to scale up our work in 2020 and beyond by visiting patreon.com slash 540WMAIN, where you can get more exclusive content like podcasts, blog posts, and also video and webinars dedicated to teaching you about how to be and practice anti-racism in your life. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. Thank you for coming back for this very special episode of More Than Isms. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Celia McIntosh, who is one of three finalists for our 540 West Main Black Women Rock 2020 campaign. Dr. McIntosh is not only a nurse, but she's also a PhD, and her work involves human trafficking and advocacy around that work, and she is doing so much amazing work in the Rochester community. If you didn't know, Black Women Rock is 540's annual month-long digital campaign where we highlight the achievements and work of four Black women and femme-identifying women of color in acting change and making significant positive contributions to the Rochester community. The mission of Black Women Rock is to highlight their work, their accomplishments, and their positive contributions. And we're so excited to give you more about the life and the work of Dr. Celia McIntosh. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for supporting the podcast on all of its platforms. Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, and also listening to the show on WXIR 100.9 Independent Radio, which is committed to bringing you the best of Rochester's Black and um, people of color um, through the platform of radio media. So thank you so much for listening to this episode, and we, we can't wait to come back to you with um, our interview with um, Ngozi Udo as well. So without further ado, here is my exclusive interview with Dr. Celia McIntosh. Hello, Dr. Celia McIntosh. How are you? Good. How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm hanging in there. You know, allergies are really kicking my butt this week, so it's been a little rough, but I'm I'm pushing through. Um uh- and I'm really excited to have you on. Um, I think just given given all that's going on in our community and world, having a moment of just some positive, um, a deeper dive into some positivity and Black women rock is really needed at this time. Well, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, so we're really happy to have you on um, more than more than isms extra here, um, and so we're just going to jump right in. Um, I, I I think just sort of starting out for those who are listening, for listeners, um, Dr. McIntosh, just sort of 
tell us who you are. How did you, um, have you always, did you grow up in Rochester? If not, where did you grow up and sort of take us on your, your path to your, um, to the field of nursing and then some of the work that you've been engaged in? Okay. Um, first, I'd like to thank you for having me on as a guest today. Um, but more importantly, I'd like to thank the 540 West Main for highlighting me um, with the highlighting the accomplishments of local Black women who are change agents in the Rochester community. I'm truly honored to be here. So a little bit about my journey. I actually was born in Jamaica and I came here to the United States when I was six. Okay. I um, grew up in Rochester. That was just, I, I think I had an aunt here and my mom just kind of landed here and we have pretty much been here ever since. Mm -hmm. But after, so my journey was, I, you know, like I said, came here when I was six. I attended pretty much um, local schools. I went to 44, 29, graduated from four school. From there, I went on to Monroe uh, Middle School. And from there, I went on to um, Edison Tech High School. But before that, I was, you know, like I said, my, my growing up, I wasn't always the, uh, I was a go-getter, but I didn't have the best relationship with my mom. So I, I really don't know how kind of things unfolded for me, but it was the matter of meeting people along the way that actually got me to the point that I'm in now. Mm -hmm. So after actually graduating from Edison, I took about um, a year off. I had always had a passion to want to be an attorney, actually loved arguing and mm -hmm. liked health policy. <laughs> and I ended up, uh, I think, going back to get my certified nursing assistant. I worked for a home health aide for a little while, went back for my CNA. And it was during that time that I decided that I wanted to be a nurse. But before being a nurse, I actually, my mom was an entrepreneur. She owned um, daycares and she often took in foster care children and uh, was also a hairdresser. And after, before, as I was actually working as a CNA, but also going back to nursing school, I decided that I was going to open up my own daycare. Okay. So I ran my own daycare for about four years. And then around that time, I had actually finished school, graduated, and then I started working at Rochester regional health in the open heart cardiac ICU. And then I worked on a step down unit for quite some time, decided I was going to go back to my, uh, for my bachelor's degree. So I went there to Brockport. And um, as I'm in Brockport, after, after a few years, I decided that, you know, I think it's time for me to branch out and, you know, kind of go back to school and learned some different things. Uh, I was very intrigued with a lot of the practitioners and, you know, um, their scope of practice and that they were learning how to do a lot more with medication management. They functioned like doctors. And I really wanted to be a part of that. So that's when I actually went back to, uh, went to Fisher. But before I went to Fisher, I actually went and got a legal nurse consultant um, certificate because I was very, like I said, passionate about um, law and nursing. But didn't really do much with that. Went back, got my master's, worked. After I got my master's, I started working in neurology. And I essentially started seeing patients, you know, with strokes and seizures. And after about two years of doing that, I decided that I wanted to go back and get my doctorate. So, and that was my project for that was you know, um, really driven by one of the patients that I had saw. He had came in that day and everything he was describing to me was depression. And I realized that we weren't actually doing a good, we weren't screening for depression. We did the physical care very well. 
um, met the metrics for that. But depression was definitely not something we were screening or checking for. So that's what drove um, me to, like I said, really want to go back and get my doctorate mm-hmm. and see if we could address that problem. Yeah, Dr. McIntosh, your, your career is so fascinating. Um, I, I, clearly, you're someone who, who values education. And um, after sort of listening to some of your trajectory and journey, I think for, for those who may be listening who are maybe um, they're in high school, they're finishing high school, and they have goals um, for higher education, I, I'm sure you're aware, um, myself included, I, I put myself through school, both undergraduate and my graduate work, and for folks listening who you know, might be feeling like it's a lot, like how do I pay for it, or, or it might be someone who um, have a similar background to yourself who might be working as a CNA or working as a as a tech in the healthcare industry, but 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 does have aspirations for higher education and and just not not quite seeing at least in right in front of you in the moment like how how to work myself through the journey. What what specific what specific things really helped you um, given that your your trajectory to nursing and to your graduate degree and then to your you know your PhD work was what some might call a, a non-traditional track. Um, mm-hmm. What are some suggestions and, and feedback for folks who are listening who who are like I I too can you know be a doctor 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 X one day um, but might not be seeing it readily in the in the immediate present. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think the biggest thing was, you know, like I said, growing up for me, I didn't know any doctors. I didn't know any nurses. They were mm-hmm. all hairdressers in my family. Yeah. So so it was just a matter. I actually, I think my first encounter was with a nurse practitioner, and I was very intrigued about what she did when I was about 17 years old. Mm-hmm. So what I would say is that, you know, for me, like I said, I did take this non-traditional route, but if you know what you want to do, you know, try to get into a program where you can, you know, they have the Excel program here. Um, they have like new visions program, def- depending on, or the YAP program in for city um, children. I would say try to get into some of these programs if you're still in high school to see if you are able to observe people in the medical field. Uh, those programs didn't exist when I was coming up. I would say if you, you know, do your research, get on the internet, look, look up what does a nurse do? What's the mm-hmm. path to get there? Or even if it's not a nurse, if it's a doctor, um, look at the path to there. Um, try to find out about scholarships. I didn't take the path of looking for scholarships. Right. You know, like I said, I pretty much worked to um, get to this point and took mm-hmm. out loans because I could not rely on my family to help me. Right. But I would definitely say if there are, you know, loans that you can take out, if there's scholarships that you can get, I would just say make a plan and stick to that plan. Yeah. That's one of the biggest things that I would suggest. Uh, when I was and and one of the biggest thing I would say, oftentimes we tell people that we're what we want to do. And sometimes you're met with a little bit of resistance in the sense that people don't encourage you. Um, and that could be because maybe they didn't pursue their goals and their dreams. And if you are talking to someone that gives you a hard stop on your goals, I would say, shake it off and talk to the next individual. Right. Do your research. Don't take their word at face value. If it's, you know, look at people that, you know, um, 
that have done this before and, and read into, you know, what track they have taken. There's mm-hmm. many organizations in the community like right now, like Rochester Black Nurses Association, tons of nursing at different levels, whether they're LPNs or RNs or even student nurses, nurse practitioners, doctorally prepared nurses, or Beta Chi Chi. These different nurses in this field that are at very different levels would love to educate and mentor students about mm-hmm. their tracks. So I would say get in touch with some of these different groups uh, while you're doing your research. And um, that would that would be my recommendation. And, you know, that's so powerful that you mentioned that because I think it's, it's so important for a lot of times as Black people, we are told, you know, especially especially when you're, you may be someone who who is working, you know, working a full-time job or a full and part-time job to put yourself through um, a vocational or academic program or, or someone who might, you know, everybody who, everybody who is a college student, I think the more, more and more as we get into this new, our, 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 the century that we're in now that the, 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 the college student of today of 2020 does not look like it looked 10, 15 years ago where, where someone is starting right out of high school for so many people, especially in the black community, there are old, you know, adult learners, right? People mm-hmm. who are going back to school or folks who 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 might need it to get their GED for whatever reason. And then the trajectory to higher education started much later. And when you when you already have the barriers of being a person of color, a black person, navigating these systems that in many cases were not designed for us mm-hmm. to navigate, to interact with, um, on top of you know, being a non-traditional student, an older student, or a, a student who's a parent or has a family or who is a, a caretaker, it can sometimes look and feel very overwhelming just to interact with systems that in many ways are have a, a cookie cutter approach at recruitment for, for a nursing program, or you are the oldest person in your class. And I think that your example and the advice that, you're, that you've shared even up to this point, um, really helps to helps inspire. I think inspires me, inspires other people who are listening and who will listen to this. Um, to it's never too late to pursue your dreams, right? It's never too late to to jump in. And I know for me, relating to some of your experience, my my pathway to to edu- to being a teacher, um, to getting my um, master's in um, early childhood development, um, I had already went to school. I had already gotten a one graduate degree, and then I had a bug, um, a, a real interest in becoming an educator in the, in the K-12 classroom. So okay. I did exactly what you just shared. I, I researched, okay, I researched some more traditional teacher prep programs, like at a college, a master's program, and then I ended up sort of um, fighting with doing a a non-traditional teacher preparatory program um, mm-hmm. called the New Teacher Project, and it was a, it was for professionals who did not like study education at undergraduate level. So, I think sometimes thinking outside the box, right? Too, you know, is so important for for those of us in the Black community to to reach our goals because so many people do and will tell you you can't do it. Mm-hmm. That's not gonna work. I don't think. I don't think that's a good idea. Um, how did you, right. with some of this, was having really specific community engagement always 
um, part of your vision for yourself or was the community engagement and, and, and the advocacy that you're doing now around human trafficking things that you've always had a desire to, to, work, to work in? I will tell you that the actual, that was one of the driving forces for me to become a nurse, because I remember the, I, the day that I was standing at um, the Hill Haven nursing home back then, mm-hmm. it was still, it was like via health. And I remember just thinking like, I want to be a nurse because I want to advocate for patients. I want to advocate for families because I felt like, you know, back then we used to say, you know, imagine this patient is your mom. You know, that's how you would approach people and say, well, you know, imagine if this was your mom here, how would you treat them? And I didn't think that there were a lot of people that were getting the best care or, you know, and I just felt like, you know what, I got to go back. I got to advocate. This is what I want to do. I want to help people. So I think that always being in the back of my mind is what really pushed everything for me. Um, going forward in terms of getting in with community engagement and the advocacy work. uh, I think really, I, even though I wanted to do that before, I didn't really have time until about 2014. Mm -hmm. And it was at that moment, like right before that in 2013, I was also doing sexual assault kits. I would collect forensic evidence for women that had come into the hospital and, you know, saying they were raped and I would have to collect the evidence. And after doing that for about a year, I didn't feel like I was helping them. I wouldn't see them after I collected that kit. And I happened to be walking into work one day and I saw that there was a table out with Rochester Regional Coalition Against Human Trafficking. And they started telling me about human trafficking. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, when, when did this start? the mere fact that someone can use your vulnerability and exploit you from that or develop a relationship with you, it, I just couldn't wrap my mind around it. And I just could not unsee it. I couldn't unhear it. So that's what really triggered me to do more. And as I was going to meetings um, with the coalition, I started realizing that there were other risk factors. There were systemic problems. There were root things like poverty. There were things like mental illness. There were things like drug abuse. There were all these different factors like child abuse was the number one predictor of human trafficking. Mm -hmm. So I said, I can't really just focus on human trafficking. It's more of a complex problem than that. So I really need to be in these other systems where I can also impact change if I want to see the bigger picture or, or take care of the bigger issue. So that's what's kind of driving me to do a lot of uh, the advocacy work and the community yeah. engagement, because it's not separate, you know, like I said, you know, economic, when we talk about economical injustice, when we talk about racial injustice, all of those make people vulnerable for something. So I cannot um, talk, talk about human trafficking in the vacuum. I have to look yeah. at these other issues too. Um, in terms of human trafficking, Dr. McIntosh, can you elaborate a little bit for listeners? Because I think that, so often when people hear human trafficking, oftentimes we're thinking about this sort of dark market or, or covert operations in distant lands. Um, and I think many folks, myself included, were surprised when you start to do research around modern day human trafficking that, that we have human trafficking happening right here in the Rochester community in cities all across our nation, small right. rural towns. Um, Mm -hmm. Rochester, Atlanta, Georgia is a huge hotbed for human trafficking. Um, What are, what are, I guess the the layman's, lay lay person's um, 
so I will tell you for, for right. human trafficking. So human trafficking is ex- essentially when someone is exploited by way of force, fraud, or coercion for the purpose of either commercial sex or labor services. Okay. The only the only time that's different and you don't have to have the elements of fraud, fraud or coercion is when a when it's a minor. If they're under 18, they're by definition a victim of trafficking. So uh, so when you think about human trafficking, human trafficking can be someone being for, you know, um, forced to have sex with other people, forced prostitution. Someone could be forced to sell drugs. Someone could be um, forced to, you know, like work in agriculture or be a nanny. Um, you know, oftentimes people do think that it happens everywhere else except for here. It happens in all 50 states. Mm-hmm. I will tell you that just last year, New York had the fourth highest call volume about human trafficking. Um, so, like I said, there's been an increased risk. Tra- traffickers are going to target people that are vulnerable. So if you're homeless, if you are a runaway, if you have mental illness or a drug addiction problem, oftentimes they use those um, situations to exploit you, to control you, to um, do, you know, uh, do these um, sex acts. Yeah. And it's not just girls, it's boys as well. Right. Um, I will tell you that, you know, it, it can be of all ages, of all colors. It doesn't discriminate. It's a $150 billion a year industry. So the short, um, the short story of it is essentially it's when someone essentially exploits you by way of force, fraud, or coercion. And coercion could be chemical coercion. It could be getting you hooked on, on drugs mm-hmm. and using that to manipulate you. Um, would you say that that members of you know the black community, um, black youth, black LGBTQ youth, um, are more more vulnerable or 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 even impacted by human trafficking in desperate ways compared to to other you know other races or other groups? Um, oh yeah, I would say definitely, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, it, the the literature will tell you that you know there's a higher um, victims are typically more um, you know uh, c- communities of color that yeah. are more at higher risk for human trafficking. I will tell you though that it doesn't have to be someone you don't have to be from an impoverished situation to be trafficked. Right, human trafficking is essentially a relationship based crime. So it's a matter of it. It can look like a boyfriending situation. It can look like, you know, boy meets girl two months later. I mean, he's showering her with gifts and two months later, all of a sudden he flips a switch and says, I I can't afford this anymore. I can't afford to pay rent. I need you to sleep with one of my friends to make ends meet. And Mm -hmm. then it doesn't stop there. And when, and when she refuses, it becomes violent. So it, so there's many, and that's a technique we call that grooming. Mm Mm-hmm. So, so Mm -hmm. oftentimes, and it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't have to be from someone that's impoverished. It can happen to people that are um, on the internet in their own bedrooms traffic because maybe someone got access to their Facebook account, messaged them on Facebook. They were, you know, developed a relationship with them, started sending them nude pictures. And then now all of a sudden now they have that to blackmail them. So it can be a variety of different things it doesn't have to necessarily be because you come from impoverished situation but the more vulnerable you are the more likely someone can exploit that yeah so dr mcintosh you are you are involved in in, in a couple of different organizations locally that that speak to human trafficking can you share some of those resources um just at this time um for folks who are who are interested in learning more about the advocacy work that you're doing or or you know even if they might know someone who they think is um, being 
involved in human trafficking, where where could they reach out to at least locally for 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 support for that? Okay, so locally they can get in touch with, um, they can, um, like I said, review on the website Rochester Regional Coalition Against Human Trafficking. Mm-hmm. Um, there's um, Center for Youth. They do also a lot of work with youth um, that have been trafficked and homeless victims. Um, Angels of Mercy. They do some. They mainly do a lot of. Um, like they have a boutique for victims that have been trafficked or domestic violence. Um, Willow now they used to mainly do things with just domestic violence victims, but now they've, they've also gotten grants to provide some services for human trafficking victims. But if it's someone just saying, Hey, I just want to ask some questions. I just want to get some information on it. They can definitely reach out to Rochester regional coalition against human trafficking. Yeah. We, we love that. And, and before we move on, I am going to do a little bit of promotion um, for our behalf. So this podcast will not only be available um, on our Anchor platform um, and then wherever you find your podcast, whether that be Stitcher or Apple, but it'll also be available live um, tomorrow. Um, it'll be J- July 12th or June 12th. Um, on WXIR 100.9 Independent Radio, which is also a partner of, of ours. Um, WXIR is a local community station um, located on Gorham Street in the city of Rochester. Um, and the, the station is really all about supporting um, Black broadcasters and content producers, um, content creators who are wanting to um, have a voice um, through the independent radio platform. So um, WXIR 100.9. You can go to the website to, to listen to the, the wealth of different programming that, that is offered um, on the station, um, all created by um, Black producers, um, radio DJs, etc. So um, I just want to sort of plug that in. Before we move on with Dr. Celia McIntosh, um, you know, one of, one of the things that's, that's really so prominent right now, um, Dr. McIntosh is sort of thinking about racism as a public health crisis. We had just this week um, the Rochester Black Agenda Group um, release a statement and release um, a, a really a, a community um, call to, to label, to, 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 to promote racism as a public health crisis. Um, mm-hmm. From your perspective as a nurse um, and a healthcare professional, do you feel like we've reached a watershed moment in the healthcare industry as it relates to the health impacts of racism? Well, I do feel like, you know, this, we've reached a moment where there needs to be more than discussion about it. There needs to be some action. I definitely, in the healthcare field, I will tell you firsthand that that's one of my priorities Mm -hmm. in terms of dealing, dealing with racial um, inequity and, you know, injustices, because I've seen, you know, as a, as a provider, oftentimes, like I deal with a lot of patients with strokes. So sometimes there will be patients that come into the hospital and, you know, even if they're there for the first time, sometimes I'm hearing people say, oh, they're faking it. They're faking it. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, this is the first time you're meeting the patient. They need to have the benefit of the doubt. You don't give them that diagnosis on the first time. And there's been patients that have 
had strokes and they weren't in the window for the clot busting. Well, they were in the window for the clot busting medicine, but because you had this idea that they were faking, they didn't get it. So that impacted their care, that impacted their outcome. So I think right now it is impacting the healthcare system. We've seen it with COVID. Um, We see that oftentimes patients um, may not get the same alternatives as their white counterpart in Mm -hmm. terms of other patients. Um, We've seen literature that says that black patients are more more likely to get amputations versus other alternatives. Um, so it does impact the healthcare, And like I said, I definitely think this is the moment that we need to talk about this. We need to address this. Uh, we need to look at our systems in terms of what does our leadership look like? What do our boards look like? You know, how, the, if you, what does your hospital look like when majority of your patients are communities of color? Who is your workforce? You know, so we definitely need to um, look at those things. So from your perspective, just being someone who's, who's, who, who has access to, to some healthcare systems locally, do you, do, you see, um, do you see some action in terms of policy and practice, um, the, the diversity of, 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 of leadership in healthcare settings, um, or do you, at least for the Rochester community that you're um, intimately involved with, or or do you see that there's still a lot of work to be done as far as that's concerned? Oh, there's a lot of work to be done. I would yeah. say that there's a lot of work to be done, but this with, um, especially with this document of this declaration for racism is a public health problem. Um, and then this whole, everything going on with COVID, this is the perfect opportunity for individuals in the system to go and challenge their employers and say, okay, what are we going to do about this? What is our call to action from an organizational standpoint? And how do we improve this care so that we can, you know, take the best care of our patients so we can meet the patients where they're at. But I definitely think for individuals, we need to now challenge our organizations to really step up to the plate in a sense and make some serious changes. Um, I personally would like to go to, I, I don't, there's, I've never had um, really much education on cultural competency in the workplace. And mm-hmm. I said, for me, maybe I'll go and do a half day education session focused around diversity and inclusion and do some case studies or case scenarios and, and, and have, you know, nurses and providers and administrators come to that session so we can at least start having the conversation but this is definitely the time to kind of you know keep your foot on the gas and really start asking these questions and challenging leadership and saying why does our hospital look like this why do we have more housekeepers and not enough people of color in leadership roles and what Mm -hmm. are we going to do about that well speaking to that you know, Dr. McIntosh, a, a big piece of, of what we're talking about, especially when it comes to, you know, the I was just listening to a podcast episode that talked about that for Black patients, having a Black doctor, right, mm-hmm. um, is so crucial or in many ways beneficial to them that that, that, that Black patients re- relate better to a Black doctor. But but historically, there has always been there's a shortage of Black healthcare professionals at the nursing, at the doctoral level, um, across all um, specialties, not just nursing, but also with mental health providers. I know for me personally, it's been really crucial for me to rebuild my healthcare team as someone who lives with um, a chronic disability, um, a chronic illness, and 
I will say that it's been difficult. I, I, I've, I've been able to find um, a mental health provider that is, that is Black. And I can't tell you that even in even for someone who th that was an active thing that I was looking for, now that, I, that I've been working with this, this mental health provider for the last five weeks, some of the deeper discussions that we've been able to have and some of the breakthroughs that she's been able to support me with, I know for sure that, that they wouldn't have come as soon as they did if mm -hmm. she wasn't a Black woman working with me. Mm -hmm. there's, there's, there's this already a, a sense of, of camaraderie and, and, and a sense of community. Mm -hmm. um, at a very intrinsic level that that I, I don't have to go into the patient room, so to speak, building. Mm -hmm. How can what are what are, do you have suggestions for for leaders who might be listening to this with with improving the pipeline for for nurses, for doctors who are of color? Mm -hmm. um, because I know that so many colleges continue to reach out to us and for this to be initiatives diversity initiatives um, for, for black physicians and, and doctors at, at, the, at the broad level. So not only at the medical doctor level, but also at, you know, academic, academic um, graduate student level. Um, and there's still a huge shortage. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm wondering in an ideal world, you know, what would you think would be possible to improve just the pipeline of, of black people going into the nursing profession. Well, I mean, oftentimes you you know they have this saying that you can't be it if you don't see it. You know, right. and like I said, for me, I didn't grow up with uh, a mom that was a nurse or anyone around. She wanted me to be a hairdresser, and that was supposed to be my path. Um, mm -hmm. So it's like, and it, and and people can say we want to change this and we want to change the landscape and we want more black doctors or more black providers but the reality of it is that things have to change at every level just like they're talking about policies need to change attitudes need to change you know and one of the biggest thing there's a lot of organ for example um i went to a talk um, a while ago and many of the students that came out out of this said suburban high school said we were never we were never encouraged to go to college that right. you know their counselors didn't tell them that they could go to push them to the next level so you know even though people are coming out they're not being encouraged they're not giving being given these alternatives they don't know what their options are i will tell you personally when i was you know 17 you know getting ready to get out of um high school, I was told by a counselor that was helping me fill out paperwork that essentially I wasn't good enough to go to a four-year school. And mm -hmm. that in my mind is really why I took a year off because, you know, I didn't have that support at home. And here I was right. talking to this adult that had education and it was supposed to be guiding me, but yet he was also doing, tearing me down. He wasn't encouraging me. So if there's no one really encouraging you and really helping you through the process and then when you get into these schools if there's no one that looks like you and has the same experiences like you and they have all these different expectations or maybe it's like you went to a school that you know the education was suboptimal and then you get into the the program and you maybe can't keep up because you weren't taught to that level and no one's helping you and no one's kind of giving you the tools to, to help you over that hump. 
all that matters. So, so you need, you, it's, it's not just, we, we don't need the lip service of it. We need people that are really going to be motivating people and beyond motivating them saying you can do it and taking them to the next step and not only, and helping them. Or maybe we need organi- these organizations to partner with some of these different high schools, um, like the Youth Apprenticeship Program did it with RGH, and, you know, to have you know be, them be able to go into um, hospitals to see these different people in these different roles, because maybe that's the only time they're going to get exposed to it. But they can't say we want more of these providers, but then they're not willing to do the hard work to come to these communities, educate them on the opportunities, talk to them about programs. And in the meantime, having people tear them down, the counselors not saying that they can do it or helping them fill out the applications or, you know, you don't feel empowered that way. So some of those are the things that really set you up that you don't want to be bothered. You know, Mm -hmm. you have a negative experience or maybe you, like I said, have a negative experience with, um, you know, someone you know whether they're in the healthcare field or what and you just you're just turned off by that but i would say if they're not encouraging them um then it then it's not helpful then they're not they're going to deter from coming into this field yeah you know you've touched on um quite a few challenges and things that you've been able to overcome um in your career to to get you to the place where you are now you know especially as a black woman and, and thinking about the, the hurdles that so many black women are, are forced to face with every single day. What has inspired you to continue to keep going in spite of, of the systemic, you know, and individual level challenges that you've experienced in your life? Um, so I, this same counselor, he was not, he was not white. He was black. Mm-hmm. And um, I think for me um, growing up with, at that time, a mother that I didn't feel it was very supportive. I didn't feel like I was in a supportive environment. And then, you know, getting pushback from him. I think I, the fa- what's kept me going is the fact that I did not want to give these people the satisfaction. Right. You know, to, 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 to live up to their expectations of me failing. That's what kept me going. So in actuality, I kind of buried myself in, you know, work and school. And pushing myself through because I know that I could only at that point, I mean, there were people that came along my path that, I, I mean, I, no one does this alone, mm-hmm. but, but for me, it was like, I really had to encourage myself because I, like I said, I didn't want to fail and give people the satisfaction of saying, oh yeah, you know, she, she, she couldn't do it. She didn't, um, you know, she, she. Fate, my mom would say the face the gal didn't do it. Even when she came to my graduation for my doctorate, she said, mm-hmm. I, I can't believe my feisty daughter um, has mm-hmm. gotten this far. But mm-hmm. it was just like, even at that point, you know, there was no really good words of encouragement. So like mm-hmm. I said, for me, what's pushing me is the fact that I didn't want to be a failure. Um, and then I had a son that I also wanted to be an example for and also wanted to be an example for, you know, my nephews and my niece and my family to say, you don't, there are many opportunities. You don't, you can't define yourself by someone else's expectations. You can go to college, you can get a doctorate, you can get mass, multiple masters if you like, you know, mm-hmm. the sky's the limit. You can be an entrepreneur, but it was a matter of, you know, wanting to be more 
overall, just wanting to be more and not yeah. wanting to fail. Absolutely. And, you know, I, you, you've touched on several facets, but just to sort of really highlight for, for black women who are listening to your story, who, who, who might have some very similar experiences with, with maybe not having the support by a maternal or paternal figure. And, and in many ways to find that support intrinsically, um, what advice do you have for, for black women listening who, who, you know, are looking, wanting more for themselves or for their family or, or, or wanting to engage in the community and, and, and improve upon um, our community? Where, how, how do they start? You know, that's sometimes always where, where people get, it can be really overwhelming to even know where to begin. Okay. So, so I would say the, you have to believe in yourself. I think that's got to be the number one, you know, you to say that if I start this, I'm going to be able to finish it, or I'm going to believe in myself when nobody else believes in me. And sometimes it's just a matter of taking that first step and taking that first step may be, you know, going up to sign up for a class. It may be, you know, if you have a, you know, finishing your GED if you hadn't finished it before. Um, Maybe, like I said, taking one class at a time. I think we as people, we have the tendency to want everything like, you know, immediate gratification. We, We want when we get started, we want that degree right away. And we have to understand that there has to be some joy in the journey. So sometimes you have to take a step back and say, you know what, fine, I can't take four classes this semester. Maybe I'll just take Mm -hmm. one. Maybe I'll just keep my foot in the door to keep myself going. Maybe maybe it's a person that, you know, has their GED and they want to go to an LPN program or whatever program and they have to take a tape test. And, you know, and it's just like, okay, well, the first step could be signing up for the test. You know what I mean? So so baby steps to that point. Don't feel like you have to, you know, have complete the whole task today. Just one step, whether it's me having to take this entry exam test, maybe it's me actually going to the school and doing a tour or talking to someone about how to get to the next step. Just having the conversation with the family and saying how supportive they can be. Um, And maybe, like I said, just kind of getting your support system in place to be able to get you to that next step. But definitely don't be afraid to step out of your comfort zone. Absolutely. Don't be, yeah, don't give up on yourself, you know, um, because oftentimes, you know, like I said, you, we, we stay in this comfort zone because there's a mindset of fear or because you feel like, okay, if, if I start this and I don't finish it, people are going to look at me and people are going to say that I didn't do it and that I failed and I don't want to be held to someone else's expectations. And we have to get out of that mindset of fear. And like I said, take that first step but you believe in yourself um and that's where you start yeah you know and- yeah I, I i think i was just sort of gonna say I, I think that especially um sometimes as people of color black people it, that, that that burden we, we we have the weight of the world literally on our shoulders and, and on our minds and and sometimes i think that we it can get really really we feel like well if, if we can't if we can't take it all on at once, then we it's not it's not doable, and there we sometimes right. forget that there is value and there is um, there there is beauty in those baby steps, right? So taking one class as mm-hmm. opposed to taking a 
a whole four class in the semester that it's like a, it can be very easy to have an all or nothing approach to transformative mm -hmm. work and um we forget that it's 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 brick by brick sometimes right and Right. um sometimes it just feels like that 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 desire to really want to change the system because you know so often it's 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 us it's us individually it's us collectively it's our families who are so often the the change agents it's it's born it's born from that deficit it's born from that pain um and Mm -hmm. I think that it's it's really we don't have to feel like we have to take it all on at once, right? Um, how would you say for you, how, how have mentors and um, just friends, people who you look to for support, how, how have, have, have those individuals been impactful in you being successful in your work? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, for the people that have been, um, has seen my journey. Um, even though, you know, like, even if I haven't stayed connected, I will, you know, hear from people randomly. And I think it maybe it's just God sending me a message that I am doing something right, because, you know, I do have a full faith in God, because you have to believe in something. And maybe it's not God, but it's, you have to, you know, essentially, for me, I had to believe that I, nothing like this wasn't just in vain, like I wasn't, you know, sacrificing things in vain. And I think, you know, just messages, you know, randomly, someone will say, I see you, I see you making moves, I see you doing, you know, I, I, I know that you graduated, you know, you've always been working hard, um, you know, so, so just someone in the background, kind of motivating, kind of pushing you, it's been very helpful. Um, but I will also say that, you know, one, the one thing that I noticed that kind of gets overlooked and I think which is a little bit frustrating for me is that sometimes people don't look back some people you know they get to a certain place and they forgot that they struggled and they forgot that they had to you know go through this process and then they don't kind of reach back and bring other people along with them and that has to work in the community but it also has to work in our workplaces you know so So I think that that's important too. And it doesn't have to be like, you know, physically pulling someone with them, but reach back and say an educational word to them or a thoughtful word or an encouraging word to someone when you see, maybe you don't see them struggling, but reach out, you know, and just encourage people. So I, I would say having that support um, and having mentors and um, that have been there along the way, just kind of saying, Cece, I see Mm-hmm. you. Um, keep doing your thing, you know, has really helped me because it makes me feel like someone cares. Like I'm not in this Right. alone. And like I said, none of us do this alone, but sometimes it can be very overwhelming and we feel that way. Absolutely. Um, what are, what are some things you're working on right now? Just just as, as it relates to, you know, your community engagement work, as it relates to your your work in in the field of nursing, just sort of to share with folks what are some things that are currently a priority for you. Well, so one of the biggest things that I'm working on right now, um, I actually just started last year, I started putting money towards a scholarship Mm-hmm. fund. Um, so this year, actually, um, I am trying to do a scholarship 
three $500 scholarships for youth apprenticeship program, people, students that are in high school and will be graduating, going to college. So my plan is to do that and also to do two scholarships a year for um, LPN students um, through Isabella Graham Hart. Because I, you know, because oftentimes people, you know, and that's what I'm saying, even if you're doing a little bit, you know, even if it is $500, that's $500 more than someone else mm-hmm. had. And oftentimes, you know, it, it's you, it may just be that make that difference for someone, you know, as they're going through, it might be that straw that broke the camel's back, that $400 or that $500 to pay for books or whatever that they need, or just to, you know, purchase food if that's what they want to use the money on. But so that's one of the things I said, I have to find a way, you know, I don't have $20,000, you know, to give to a scholarship fund right now, but maybe I have $3,000 a year that I can give to students that are trying to, you know, take the next step and do the right thing and get an education and be self-sufficient. So that's one of the things that I'm actively working on now. And I think there's going to be th- at least three students that will benefit from that scholarship this mm-hmm. year. Um, I want to, I'm working on actually, I've been doing some things to try to, you know, develop my own practice. Um, It's a process, so I am not there yet. Um, But I do want to do something with mental illness and have my own clinic, even if it's just a couple days a week, because, you know, the services are pretty, you know, nine to five. Well, guess what? Mental illness and depression and anxiety and all that stuff happens. Does it magically stop at five o'clock? No, people are over, you know, with everything with COVID or just life in general, people have, you know, things that come at at six o'clock or seven o'clock or maybe on the weekend and they need to be Mm -hmm. seen. And I would want to be a part um, of, you know, having that care for someone. So I'm working on um, that. And, you know, I would want to develop my own podcast and talk to people about lived experience, whether it's things that they experience at work or if they what or if they experience things in life. I just want to have kind of um, conversations, just real authentic conversations with people just about life. Absolutely. Um, So those are some of the things. Well, I I love to hear it. Right. I love to hear it. where would you, for folks who are interested in supporting, you know, any or all of, of, of these endeavors, um, what are some, where, what are the best ways that folks can reach out to you specifically? Okay. I, I, well, I can give them my email. My, uh, my email is drnurse58 at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. So drnurse58 at, fi- at gmail.com. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So if they want to, I mean, if it, if it's specifically about human trafficking, I would say that they can contact the organization rrcaht.org. That's the um, website rrcaht.org. That's specifically for human trafficking. But if they have questions offline that they want to talk to me specifically about, they can email And can me. you share the, the entire name again? So the Rochester right. Regional... Right. Coalition Against Human Trafficking. Perfect. Um, and Dr. McIntosh, our final question um, for, for this segment, um, why do Black women rock? Well, one of the biggest thing is, number one, because they do. <laughs> <laughs> um, number two, Black women... Yeah, black women are just so strong. I mean, I come from my mom was raised me as a single mm-hmm. mom, um, just being able to come from that environment and 
be an entrepreneur and have serial businesses, whether that's daycare or um, or just doing her hairdressing or even having foster kids, she managed to be able to be a parent and be able to be an entrepreneur. And, um, you know, we we empower, we encourage, we we just try, we, we do it all and we do it with finesse, right. you know, and we're able to, dis- in, in any adversary, basically take a, tick, uh, a licking and keep on ticking. And that's, for me, why Black Women Rock. I love it. Well, Dr. McIntosh, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for taking time out of of your your, your day and um, just to, to connect with with our platform. Um, we, we are so... Um, just just filled with gratitude um, and learning about um, the work that you're doing. Um, I will share, I don't know if you knew this, but you were also nominated last year in 2019 um, as we dug through some records. So um, I'm really happy that, that it came around again and that, you know, there are so many folks that, that were um, supportive of you as a nomination you know, the, to put in your name and your work. So we're really happy to final, finally have you on the platform um, for, for this Black Women Rock 2020. Um, I, I will share that um, for people. We have two more um, finalists who we will be spotlighting for the rest of this month. Um, so we will definitely be um, having um, podcast conversations with um, Ngozi Udo, um, and also Dr. Gail Harrison um, for for this this year's campaign. So we look forward to, to to speaking with them. And for those of you who are wanting to learn more about um, Dr. McIntosh, you can find her full interview that we did with her um, on our website, 540westmain.org. Um, and you can also follow 540westmain on Instagram and Facebook. Um, and you can see some really specific um, social media posts about um, Dr. McIntosh as well. Um, so thank you all so much for listening. Thank you again, Dr. McIntosh, um, for being a Black woman me. who rocks. And um, we look forward to continuing to follow your work um, in the community um, and also um, learning more about how we all can have a hand in dismantling um, the system of, of human trafficking in our community and nationally as well. All right. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you you soon. Bye-bye. So that's it. Our very special episode and interview with Dr. Celia McIntosh, who is one of the finalists for our 2020 Black Women Rock campaign. Um, As we shared, you can learn more about Dr. McIntosh on our platform, 540westmain.org. We have an entire interview with her where you can learn more about her background, her work in nursing and her work in um, advocating for um, dismantling human trafficking as well. Um, We really appreciate um, having Dr. McIntosh take time out of her day to um, speak with us for you all to learn more about the work that she is doing. Um, This episode will also, if you're listening, um, will be on WXIR 100.9 Independent Radio, um, which is one of our partners as well, in addition to um, sharing it on your podcast platforms and sharing it in your networks. 
for folks who may be listening after Friday, June 11th. We really thank you so much for supporting More Than Isms podcast. And you can listen to more of of our past episodes um, wherever you get your podcasts, whether that be Apple or I, Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify, um, SoundCloud as well. So until next time, this is Calvin, your host, signing out. And we can't wait to come back with you with um, our conversation with um, Ngozi Udo. Um, And that is until next time. Thanks so much.